And you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And uh, as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to finish up the chapter this morning, uh, I wasn't going to say anything to you about this, but uh, one of our elders encouraged me to tell you, and I tend to listen to my elders when they tell me to do something. Um, Byron encouraged me to tell you, um, <clears throat> after a week of studying this passage and making notes and preparing and getting ready to bring God's Word to you this morning, um, on Friday, thanks to beloved technology, um, all of the work that I put into this morning's sermon just disappeared into thin air. Um, as a Dropbox version history error, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, but that meant basically starting over like Saturday morning. So uh, that is not to say if you don't like the sermon this morning that you can just blame it on my lack of preparation. Um, but uh, just to, to know that uh, many times, you know, it, your ministry is the same way. Uh, many times we put so much work into something and then it seems as though the Lord just jerks the rug right out from under us. And you stand there wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? Uh, and yet, the Lord nonetheless uses us, and He uses His Word. And um, the great thing is, like I say to our college group every Friday night, you didn't come here to hear from Jason Drum this morning. <laughs> you came here because you want to hear from the Lord. And so, we're going to turn to His Word, and all we need is a Bible. Uh, I do also have some notes, though. But all we need is our Bibles. We want to hear from God. And that's why the normal pattern for our church, if you're new here, is simply to walk verse by verse through books of the Bible, because uh, these are the words of knowledge. These are the words of wisdom. These are the words that are precious to us. We love the Bible. Walking is pretty commonplace to us. I don't know if you've thought much as you were walking into the building this morning, left foot, right foot, left foot, right, don't fall. Uh, we don't think much about walking, we just walk, it just happens for most of us. Uh, we don't think about much, much about how we do it, but did it, um, have, they found that there's really no definitive pattern to your footsteps. We tend to think that there's like this precise and exact movement, exactly the same as the step to be for it, but in reality, your body's moving around all over the place, and no one step is the same as the step that came before it, even from the left foot each time it steps. It's a little bit different than last time it stepped, and uh, each step is at a slightly different angle, slightly different position, slightly different speed. We don't think about any of those things, but there are researchers that probably think way too much of this stuff, and they've discovered that, uh, as one of you pointed out, we walking is actually uh, defined by these as a series of um, over and over again you're actually falling forward until you get a foot in front of you to stop yourself from falling at which point that foot propels you forward and then you begin to fall again and then you better get that other foot in front of you and many of us have found that uh, if you don't get that foot out there the fall continues um, by studying the way that we walk, researchers believe they may be able to help prevent harmful falls in people who are vulnerable to them. Uh, and here in our study through Ephesians, we've seen the Apostle Paul repeatedly using the metaphor walk. We see this word, walk, 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 over and over again. 
And he uses it to describe the way that we live our lives. And sometimes our Christian walk is very much like our walk. We just do it without thinking very much about what we're doing. So it's good for us, as it were, to consider how we walk. And that's what Paul's doing with the Ephesians as we walk through the book of Ephesians. And uh, it's good for us as we think along with Paul and the Ephesians to think about our own Christian lives, how we walk, to consider how we ought to walk. And so I'll just remind you where we are in our study through the book of Ephesians. You remember the slide from last week. We'll put it up really quickly. And uh, due to the overwhelming number of uh, texts and conversations that I had, you wanted a copy of this. The, the guys put it on the website, so I think that's on the page where you would listen to the sermon. This is like a downloadable JPEG. You can go and get that if you want to nitpick the details there. But the details aren't really what matters. You got the whole book of Ephesians here, and no, you can't read it because it's too small, but that's all of the text in the book of Ephesians. You can see chapters 1, 2, and 3 on the left, chapters 4, 5, and 6 on the right. Everything highlighted in blue is the things that God has done for us, and everything highlighted in red is the things that God is calling us to do, the commands, as it were. And you can see how weighted this is. Uh, And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 there, right in the middle, walk in a manner worthy, which is to say, obey these commands, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, what we do is directly connected to what God has done for us. And so you'll recall, we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians and found that uh, in the first half of Ephesians, all of those gospel doctrines, all of the, the rich truths motivate the way that we live. And now in the second half of the book, we're looking at eight characteristics of gospel culture that flow out of that gospel doctrine. The, the gospel culture that we want for our church really becomes a reality as each of us walk in the right way individually. And so, As we aim for gospel culture in our church, we look here at eight characteristics of a worthy walk. We covered three, the first three, last Sunday. It's a unified walk, it's a ministry walk, and it's a different walk. And we uh, looked through chapter four to see those three things. This morning, we're going to look at four more, beginning with number four. So you'll see, starting in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, it's an active walk. The Christian life is an active walk. With all the talk in the book of Ephesians in particular about reminding ourselves of the gospel, how the indicatives drive the imperatives, it's, it's easy to begin to think that the Christian spiritual growth is maybe just a matter of thinking about truths and letting God change us, a, a process in which we are passive and only God is active. It's, it's easy to think that way. Some recent Christian catchphrases only confuse this further, like when we say, just let go and let God. Now, I know what we mean by that. I'm not saying, like, you're in sin if you say that. But sometimes we say that in a way that we make it sound like, maybe I should just sit in a chair and read my Bible, and God will change me, and I'll grow as a Christian. I never have to do anything myself. Or sometimes the way we misquote Psalm 46.10 when we say, be still and know that I am God. As though the entire Christian life of one is, is one of stillness, inactivity. But that's a strong fumble of Psalm 46.10. 
The truth is that spiritual growth is a very active process for the Christian. That's why Paul wants the Ephesians to grasp what he's saying here in the last section of chapter 4. In verses 22 through 32, you see it's an active walk for the Christian. First, Paul is going to state a principle, that this is an active walk of putting off and putting on because of a particular motive. Then he's going to give some examples. So let's look first at the principle in verse 22. Look at chapter 4, verse 22 in Ephesians. He says, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that is, put off the sin that you used to commit before you followed Christ. You were different then, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's a biblical motive there. And verse 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. So there's, there's three things we're called to do right there in those verses. First, put off your old self. Second, renew your mind. Third, put on your new self. It's clear the illustration that Paul is using here, right? If you saw a firefighter running into a burning home in a t-shirt and flip-flops, or a ballet dancer on stage in hiking boots, you would say, hang on, put off those clothes. That's not in accord with who you are. Think about who you are for a second and what you're here to do, and now put on the right clothes. That's exactly what Paul's getting at. Put off something to stop doing. Put on something to start doing. Renew your mind. Think about who you are and what God has revealed to us in Scripture. There's a, a biblical motive for putting off and putting on. Let's read through Paul's examples of this principle. Here's his real-life application of the put-off, put-on model of sanctification. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So put off falsehood or lies, put on speaking the truth, motive, because we're members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So if you get angry, let it be because God is offended, not because you personally are offended. By the way, it says, give no opportunity to the devil. When you get sinfully angry, Here's a motive for you to put off anger. When you get sinfully angry, you're giving Satan a foothold in your life. Now, oftentimes we think about anger, we're thinking about that person who made us angry. We think it's all about them. Paul's saying, whoa, time out. If you're sinfully angry, you're giving Satan a foothold in your life. Don't worry about them. Look at what it's doing in your life, in your heart. He continues with the examples. Verse 28, let the thief... No longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, again, the principle put off, don't steal. Put on honest work. Motive, so you can share with people in need. Verse 29, another example here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So put off 
corrupting talk. Put on talk that builds people up. And two motives here, that you could give grace to the people who hear you talk to them and that you would not grieve the Holy Spirit. More examples from Paul. Verse 31, here's the put off. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32 is the put on. Be kind to one another. You can see how that's the opposite. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Motive, as God has forgiven you, as God in Christ forgave you. There's a lot to cover there. That's like application principle machine gun after like three chapters of gospel truths building, all of a sudden Paul is just like unleashing commands on the Ephesians here. And we're burning through them fast this morning. We could spend a whole sermon on each one of those things. And I just want to encourage you that if on any one of those things you feel like you're getting tagged in your conscience, you're feeling guilty about one of those things, you feel as though the Lord was tapping you on the shoulder, as it were, as we read through that verse, I just want to encourage you, there's, there's three things you can do. First, ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for forgiveness. See, the culture will tell you, the world will tell you, many people will tell you guilt is bad. Don't feel guilty. Do you know how many bad things come out of guilt? Listen, guilt is good if it guides us to God. Right? Guilt, there's a reason you feel in your conscience as you read a particular verse, like, oh man, kind of got me on that one. There's a reason that in God has given us a conscience, that when we feel that guilt, it would guide us to God, that it would cause us to go to Him as a loving Father who has said He will forgive. He wants it to drive us to Him. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So the first thing I'd say to do, if one of those verses as we're reading through just kind of tagged you, I'd say just you go to the Lord about that. Ask Him to forgive you for your sin. And He promises that if you do, He will. Second, I would say ask a friend to pray for you. Ask a friend to pray for you. Get another brother or sister in the Lord that you'd confess that sin to and ask them to pray for you. Uh, Because Galatians 6, 2 says we should bear one another's burdens. So that means you're not meant to bear those burdens by yourself. So don't try to do that. The Lord has given you the church for that reason. He's given you the fellowship of the saints for that reason. And so take that and confess it to the Lord and confess it to another brother or sister in Christ who could pray for you and walk with you and bear that burden with you. Um, And then third, I would say, just because we're going through these so quickly, and and maybe you put this first, go go back and study those passages in greater detail. If there's one in particular that you're like, wow, man, I, I think I need to think about that a little bit more in my own heart and life, well, let the verses, let what God has said about those things guide your thinking by just going back to these verses at the end of chapter four in the book of Ephesians and just read through them and prayerfully consider what the Lord would have you change. And then another thing you could do, in, even in studying those passages, you know, uh, John Piper didn't preach the book of Ephesians in six sermons like I'm doing this summer. 
He preached it in many, many, many sermons. And so he did preach one of each of these things, a sermon on each of them. And so maybe just go back through a pastor that you respect and, and get a verse, get the, get the sermon that he preached on those verses. Listen to, prayerfully consider those things. So first, it's an active walk. Really, fourth, it's an active walk. Fifth, our fifth characteristic of a worthy walk is it's a loving walk. Now, as we begin in chapter 5, you can see Paul is still using the walk metaphor, and he now wants us to see that the Christian life is a walk of love. It's a loving walk. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Notice the layout of those three phrases there. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, Paul intentionally uses the same word for love three times in a row. As beloved children, and it's the Greek word you're familiar with, agape. So not, not just, it's not just that they're dear to him. They're, we're beloved children. God the Father loves you. He sees you as a beloved child. And then walk in love as Christ loved us. So literally, as agape children, walk in agape as Christ agape you. Paul intentionally repeats the word, and he wants you to see the Father's agape, the Son's agape, right here in the middle, you walk in agape, walk in love. A little bit of a chiasm there. And the picture that Paul means for us to get from that is your love for others doesn't come from your own strength and ability to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do the right thing and love people. Because maybe you've noticed people are kind of hard to love, especially if you're friends with me. I'm a difficult person to love because I'm sinful. And that's true for all of us. We're difficult people to love. So how are we going to do this? We're going to do it as loved children. We're going to love one another and walk in love as Christ loved us. Your love for others finds its wellspring in God's love for you. Now, another chiasm in verses 3 through 5. Take a look, starting in verse 3. But sexual immorality, that is, porneia, and all impurity, that word impurity, akatharsia, it's not cathartic, it's the opposite of cathartic. Instead of bad things getting out, akathardia, it's, it's anti-catharsis. It's bad things coming in. So sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, which is greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There's, so look at verse 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Now look down at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, sexually immoral or impure, or who, it is, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So look at the way there that Paul frames those things. He, he repeats the three terms, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, shouldn't even be named among you. And now here's what he means by that, verse 4. Right in the middle of verses 3 and 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, 
nor crude joking or coarse jesting, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. The point, thanksgiving. When you open your mouth, right, be a Byron Tabbitt. <laughs> if you know Byron at all, you know what he's famous for asking. What are you grateful for today? What are you thankful for today? This is a good model for all of us. And Paul's point here is sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, don't even let them come out of your mouth. And do you know, do you notice how that's a repeated theme? We saw that just in the verses before this. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, because they're out of place. Instead, when you open your mouth, let there be thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? Notice how important our words are in all of this. Words are so much a part of our lives. What we say flows from who we are. That's why Paul is making a big deal out of this. You are not someone who is sexually immoral, impure, or greedy. As a child of God, you've been changed by all of those gospel truths that we saw in chapters 1 through 3. You have been made into a different kind of person. It's not just that your moral standards have been upgraded. It's that you've been changed by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, born again. Whole different kind of life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And Paul is saying here, you are not someone who is like you used to be. You've been changed. So be careful how you talk. Verse 6, as long as he's on the topic of words, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Man, people talk a lot about sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. Everywhere you turn in the world, you're going to hear it. And they don't say, isn't sexual immorality great? Right? It's, Satan doesn't approach us running up with a crack pipe. You want to get high? That's not how it comes across. Right? That's an obvious, uh, no, hard pass. No, Satan comes in with deceptive words. That is people speak to us, it comes across as though sexual immorality looks so pleasing, looks so good. Impurity, it looks like it'll bring me joy. Covetousness, more stuff, I want more. It looks like it will make me happy. And that's the message we hear from the world. And frankly, why do we sin? because we believe it's going to be good for us. We do the things that we want to do. We give in to temptation because in the moment we believe this will bring me joy. And what happens is we've been deceived by empty words. Paul's point in tying these things together is be careful how you talk and don't be deceived by empty words from others either. So how we talk matters, how our words matter. It says in verse 7, therefore do not become partakers with them. You see the connection there? Be careful how you talk. They talk with deceptive words, empty words. So don't become partners with them. For again, we're going back to the identity factor here. At one time, verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. 
walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Notice again just how much all of this is rooted in identity, who we are in Christ. This is not just hand-slapping moral platitudes. This is rooted in who you are as a born-again believer with the Spirit of God living in you. You live differently because of who you are. Paul says, that's not who you are anymore. Don't, don't live that way. That's not who you are, so that's not how you walk. We're looking at eight characteristics of a worthy walk. Number six, it's a wise walk. As we move into these next verses, it's a wise walk. We'll see in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, the main idea there is that the Christian life, the Christian walk is a wise walk. He says in verse 15, look at it in your copy of God's Word, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Again, you see Paul using the walk metaphor to discuss how we live our lives, and here it's a wise walk, a a careful walk. You only need to live in Arizona for a brief period of time before you start to see the pattern in the headlines. 34-year-old Utah woman dies after falling into Grand Canyon National Park. Grand Canyon hiker dies falling into Deer Meadows. Hiker falls 50 feet to his death Saturday. Grand Canyon hiker dies in fourth such fatality this month. Now these verses give us instruction that translates in the physical realm. We get it. Be careful how you walk when you're walking in a dangerous place. And that instruction in the physical realm translates to the spiritual realm, doesn't it? Look carefully, Paul says, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. This verse indicates precision in our lives. There's an exact and accurate way to live according to the perfect design of God for life on earth. We don't have to wonder what that is either. You hear people say often, like, I wonder what God's will is for my life in this. Well, you don't have to guess. That's why this book is so thick. The Lord has revealed a lot to us so that we could know His will for our lives. We don't have to guess. And part of the way Paul describes this is he says, look at verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time. Paul's point here is you want to live a a Christian life that is a wise walk rather than an unwise walk, pay close attention to how you use your time. And it says making the best use of the time. Literally in the Greek, it's, you could translate it, buying the opportunity. Buying the opportunity. It's a metaphor taken from merchants and traders who diligently observe and improve their merchandise and their trading tactics. They're always being very careful about what the right opportunity is to to buy this, to sell that. And he uses this as as a metaphor for the way that we use our time. Buying the opportunity. Making the best use of your time. Notice the motive here because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, when we look at the world and we see, and we often do, that the days are evil, it's meant to motivate us 
to be careful how we spend our time. Next time you are watching the news or scrolling through on your phone and reading the news or looking at the, you know, recent Twitter trends, whatever it is, you see something out in the world and think, man, this world is messed up. The next thought you should have is, how can I be really careful with my time today? Because, man, we live in evil days. So we live with wisdom. The Christian life is a walk of wisdom. It's a wise walk. When you're young, you think that money is the most valuable thing. It doesn't take getting much older and wiser before you begin to see that time really is our most precious commodity. You have a budget for your money, but do you think about the best way to spend your time? This old newspaper classified ad lost yesterday somewhere between sunrise and sunset two golden hours each set with 60 diamond minutes no reward offered for they are gone forever time is more valuable to us than gold and diamonds but we don't often treat it that way do we often we look out and see that the the days are evil and we respond by complaining that the days are evil. Or we look out and we see that the days are evil and we respond by arguing with each other about why the days are evil. Or we look out and we see that the days are evil and we get mad at politicians that the days are evil. But the evil of our day ought to motivate us to make the very best use of our time that we possibly can. The Christian farmer sees the sun setting and doubles his efforts to finish harvesting before time runs out. Verse 17, Paul continues, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, whether you live in Ephesus or Prescott, you live in a wicked world during evil days, so don't walk hastily. Don't, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. If you want to walk carefully, if you want to make the best use of, the to, of your time, you better know exactly what God thinks about things by knowing His will, getting wisdom. It says, do not be foolish. Okay, what do I do instead? understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is it that will prevent you from spending your time foolishly? The thing that will prevent you from spending your time foolishly is understanding what the will of the Lord is. And how do we know God's will? How do we get wisdom? Hint, it's the answer to every Sunday school question. The Bible, it's our middle name, Canyon Bible Church. As you look around and see the brokenness of the world and the evil of the days, it ought to consistently motivate you to read and study your Bible so that you actually know how to carefully live your life and spend your time in this world and in these evil days. Let's be honest. That is not what seeing evil in the world often motivates us to do. Sometimes we're just trying to find ways to escape escape into our air-conditioned homes, escape into our smartphones, escape into alcohol. Paul even anticipates that. Verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine. Like, hey, I I know the world's messed up. 
Don't go drinking yourself stupid over it. Do not get drink with, drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Debauchery, not a common word. You probably didn't use that one this week. Debauchery is a sin of excess. In other words, it's a sin because you did so much of it. It's a sin of excess. So he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So just to be clear, the Bible never says drinking alcohol is a sin, but drinking in excess until you get drunk is a sin, until you lose control, that is. That is a sin specifically because when you're filled with alcohol, you're no longer in control of your body. That's the issue. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. So don't get drunk and lose control. Instead, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's going to list three characteristics, three, three things that manifest themselves in the life of a Christian who is controlled by or filled with the Holy Spirit. Ready for him? Here's the first one. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So one of the ways that it looks, manifests itself in the life of a Christian who is controlled by the Holy Spirit is song. The second one, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So second way, being filled with the Spirit manifests itself in your life, gratitude. Third, and he's going to go into a lot of details on this one. The rest of the chapter is number three here. Third way that being filled with or controlled by the Spirit is manifested in the life of a Christian is verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, you can see that in the ING verbs, right? Be filled with the Spirit, addressing in verse 19, giving in verse 20, submitting in verse 21. All of those three, addressing, giving, submitting, are all modifying be filled with the Spirit. Here in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's going to elaborate that on, in a very detailed way. In fact, the, the rest of this morning and the first part of next Sunday's sermon is all of Paul's elaboration on, on what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that look like? How does it play itself out in our relationships with each other? And so we'll call that the seventh characteristic of a worthy walk. It's a submissive walk. It's a submissive walk. Now, we recognize this section we are about to embark on as the marriage section in the book of Ephesians. This is common to us, and oftentimes we, um, th this is like a, a premarital verse, right? Like for us to know how to live as a husband and a wife, we recognize Ephesians 5, 22 through 23 as the husband and wife part of Ephesians. Um, now, ironically, there are three couples here this morning that I'm marrying, Wait, I'm not marrying them. I'm married to Claire. <laughs> I am performing the ceremony in which they will be married before the Lord. Um, Josh and Zelfia are getting married this Friday. Tyler and Leone are getting married like first week in September. And Kevin and Felicity are here and they're getting married in about eight weeks, like second week in September. And so you all get to listen in on a little bit of premarital counseling this morning. Uh, honestly, though, whether, whether you're about to be married, I, I think whether you're about to be married, whether you've been married for 18 years or you're single, 
but have fellow believers whose spiritual growth you're responsible for, we all need to learn from these passages. Uh, There's a lot we can learn from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and we could spend a lot of time on here, but um, you're already wondering when I'm going to finish the sermon this morning, and uh, we got a lot more territory to cover. So, this section on marriage, we often pull out of context, and you know the first rule of Bible study is the same as the first rule of real estate. Location, 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 right? If you want to understand a passage of Scripture, look at its location, the context of where it sits in the Bible. Don't just reach down and pluck a verse out and say, I wonder what this means. Well, read what came before it. Read what came after it. Understand the logical flow of the the point that's being made by the author and why he wrote it to his audience. And so, as we understand this passage on marriage, in the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we recognize these verses to wives and then to husbands are modifying what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in verse 21. When you're controlled by the Spirit, again, you sing, you are grateful, and you submit to one another. And now in this section, he's going to talk about what it looks like to submit to one another. And he goes, wives, husbands, children, fathers, employees, bosses, and all of that section of Ephesians is all pointing back to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as you're controlled by the Spirit, it influences your relationships. That's the point. So verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now just to make the point that I just made, there is no verb in verse 22 here. It literally says in the Greek, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. The translators pulled that verb submit from the verse above it because they know this is just describing what it means that we're submitting to one another. So it's submitting to one another, wives to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Masters, do the same. All of those pointing back up to the point Paul made that as we're controlled by the Spirit, it changes the way we live our relationships. We submit to one another. So when we think about wives submitting to husbands, we have to think about it in this context. This is what it looks like in your relationships to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just going to assume this morning, and I know this is not a fair assumption, I'm just going to assume this morning that you've heard before and already believe what the Scripture teaches here about a wife's submission to her husband. And that is, a wife should submit to her husband. A woman who is controlled by the Holy Spirit follows her husband's leadership. Now, obviously, with all of the cultural attacks on marriage, there's a lot we could say here to defend the beauty of biblical marriage, the way that God has designed it, a a husband's loving leadership, a wife's respectful submission. But just briefly walk through these verses with me. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that phrase, to your own, to your own husbands. This is meant to define a limitation here, right? You don't have to follow and submit to everyone. God has given you the gift of a leader, a husband, to love and to lead and to protect you. And you can submit to your own husband and not worry about what other people think. Man, that's a gift. 
My wife has often said to me, sometimes it just feels really good to say, I'm sorry, Jason said I can't. It's really comforting. There is a, a protection to having a leader who cares for you and is the kind of husband that we're going to see coming up in this passage. Here's the thing I want you to notice about these verses. Both the wives and the husbands, the command is very brief. But there's a lot of, there's 11 verses here, 12 verses here. And the commands are this, wives, submit to your husbands, husbands, love your wives. That's all that Paul says, but all of the rest of it, all the other, these 12 verses in this section is motivation and description. It's why wives should submit to their husbands and why and how husbands ought to love their wives. If I was preaching on just these verses, the title of the sermon would be A Motivated Marriage. These aren't just commands. Wives do this, husbands do that. Go ahead, go do it. No, there's a lot here meant to motivate you and encourage you and help you as you as a wife seek to submit to your imperfect husband and you as a husband seek to sacrificially love your imperfect wife. There's a lot built into this that's meant to help you in that process. Namely, the gospel. Paul spent three chapters building the gospel foundation before he got to any of the commands, but now we're here in the midst of the, the imperative machine gun. Paul is unleashing commands on the Ephesians, and still, all along the way, he's throwing in gospel truths to make sure they understand. This isn't out of your own strength. Like, be, pay careful attention to your heart. Like, here's what's going to motivate you to do this. So Paul wants to continue to build a gospel foundation for the home as he describes wife and a husband's role. And here is the wife's gospel motivation to follow her husband's leadership. The command is simple. Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now the gospel foundation in verses 23 and 24. Here's why. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice the gospel, the relationship between Jesus and his church. I mean, is there anything that you could spend more time like meditating on that would just blow your mind than the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church? And that is meant to motivate a wife. So, wives, I was going to say, if there comes a time when you struggle to submit to your husband, when you are struggling to submit to your husband, don't whip yourself on the back with the command that you have to submit or God's going to be angry with you. Instead, do what Paul does here. Fill your tank with gospel motives that are going to change your heart and give you gospel fuel to do something that oftentimes feels foreign and wrong and difficult. Submission is hard, and we're all submitting to someone. We all have people that we submit to, bosses, leaders in the church, right? Uh, husbands, children are submissive to parents. We're submissive to the police. God has put the government over us. We're all submissive, and ultimately, we're submissive to Christ. So all of us understand 
Submission is difficult. It is hard. Let me tell you something that's harder than submission. Dying. A husband's job is to die every day to care for his wife by dying to himself. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Now there's the command. That's it. Love your wives. That's the command. But here's the thing. We don't get to define what it means to love our wives. Now, we would love to, as husbands, we would say things like, well, you know, I provide for her. That's what I do to love. I go to work. I work hard. I bring home a paycheck. I pay for everything. I, I love her by providing for her. Well, that's a really good way to love your wife. It's just not enough. It's not the only thing. Here, God defines our love in the next verses. He says, husbands, love your wives Look at it in verse 25, as Christ loved the church. Okay, so wh- however that is, that Jesus loved the church, that's how I'm called to love my wife. So husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church. So there's a parallel here, right? How did Christ love the church? Well, Paul tells us in the very next verses, and gave himself up for her. So husbands, that's the parallel. How are we called to love our wives? What does it look like? Die. Give yourself up for her. Die to your preferences. Die to your desires. Die to your personal goals for your money and your schedule and your time. And prioritize your wife's desires and preferences and needs. Die. What does she need? You die to make sure she gets it. You give up what you want instead. So it's funny because when we say, well, wives should submit to their husbands, the world thinks, oh, well, that just means the husband always gets his way and the wife, she's just a doormat. He just runs over her. She never gets anything. And he's just kind of like king of the household, sitting on the couch eating potato chips. The Bible gives the opposite picture, though. In, In a biblical home, in a Christian marriage, it's actually the wife who is always getting her preferences, always getting her desires until it becomes a sin issue, right? And and Paul's going to get to that. But the husband is giving his wife anything and everything that she needs and wants in so much as he's able to, to care for her, to bless her, to serve her, to prioritize her over himself. And notice the goal in verse 26. The goal is not that she be treated like a princess and spoiled rotten. Well, that's not a bad thing. Spoil your wives rotten. Uh, Verse 26 says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the, the husband's primary goal is to help his wife grow spiritually, to sanctify her, to make her, to help her become more like Christ. Now, how do any of us become more like Christ? as we read our Bibles, as we know the Scriptures, as we, Paul said, renew our minds, we're changed to become more like Christ. So how does a husband help his wife grow spiritually? Cleansing her by the washing of water with the Word. I saw a really great example of this just last night. You know, obviously I'm meditating on these verses this week, and a couple that we were spending time with last night, this was so precious. The wife was really down on herself. And the husband put his arm around her and said, 
Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I just thought, man, that's amazing. That's, be- that's beautiful. That's how a husband loves his wife by washing her in the water of the word. Like, no, 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 we're not going to dwell on your guilt and shame because you've been forgiven in Christ. And the Bible says... So a husband's primary goal is to help his wife grow spiritually, and and he does that with the Bible. Verse 27 tells us why. So that, and again, this is talking about Jesus, but it's drawing the parallel to husbands. Verse 27, so that, purpose clause, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, you might notice just by looking down at your Bible, the, wife, the verses to the wives is like this big, and the verses to the husbands is like this big, right? Like apparently the Lord thought, husbands, y'all really need some help, seriously. And so God gave us more because he knows, you know, we're kind of slow. God's like, they're going to need a lot of help here. Like these guys are just, this is rough. So God gives us a lot. But this, this picture here, right, that Jesus might present the church, his bride, to himself, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, that's a picture of perfection. Now, you tell me. Jesus' bride is the church. Is she perfect? (laughs) No, we're not. We're a huge mess. Husbands, don't deal with your wife according to her sins or her successes. She's not perfect. She's a mess, just like you are. So, notice what Jesus does. He takes it upon himself. He takes the initiative to sanctify his bride using the word of God to grow her until she's perfect. You want an amazing wife? You want a perfect wife? Marry an imperfect woman and get to work. Jesus didn't marry a perfect woman, but he died to help her grow into her full potential. So husbands, let's die to ourselves. And man, you just have no idea how I'm just preaching this to my own heart and how much I need this as much as anybody else in this room. A Bible college professor that was really dear to me told me once um, when I was complaining about the fact that my wife isn't perfect. Like, I'm surprised, I should be surprised by that. Like, I, I married a sinful woman. What happened? I had a Bible college professor who said, Jason, he took me to these verses. I said, Jason, when I find myself really frustrated with my wife, I do something that's been really helpful to me, and I want to encourage you to do the same. When you find yourself frustrated with your wife and how imperfect she is and how sinful she is, March down to the bathroom and point in the mirror and say, she got this way under your gifted leadership. (laughs) And I think that's a good word for us. That's a great reminder. God didn't give us perfect wives. And let's be honest, he didn't give our wives perfect husbands either. We all need help growing in the faith, growing in our knowledge and understanding of the Word of God so that we'd be sanctified, made to be more like Christ. And God has given the role of leader to you that you might sanctify your wife. And if you check the imagery here, right, it's like God is saying, listen, if you want to present an amazing wife to yourself, then make her amazing. Like, 
get to work. It's, it's your responsibility, husband. So Jesus' plan for his marriage to the church is that he would die for her to give her what she needs and then clean her up by washing her with the Bible. And then verse 28 closes the loop. Take a look at it. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And remember, by love, we're talking about sacrificially dying to your own preferences to give her what she needs. He who does that for his wife is, is benefiting himself. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. So twofold motivation to do this for your wife here because that's what Jesus did for you, his bride, the church. And second, because your wife is literally part of you. And that's why he quotes the very first passage in the Bible, which almost every time marriage comes up in the Bible, it's constantly pointing back to Genesis uh, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You're seeing it there in verse 31. And what did God say about marriage? The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So, brothers, I would just say to you as husbands what I said to the women. If you're not loving your wife by sacrificially dying to yourself for her benefit and then helping her grow spiritually, yes, you need to repent, but then you need to meditate on how Jesus has sacrificially loved you in the gospel. Like, go back through Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 and other gospel-rich passages in Scripture and think about what God has done for you. Let that create for you an image of the perfect husband. And then be like that to your wife. Let it inform and motivate who you are as a spirit-filled husband. Now, Paul's final summary of these things in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Man, there are a lot of commands in these verses this morning for all of us. There's a lot of commands to obey. But what you need to see is that the primary thrust of this text is not just a moral treatise and a list of commands so that we can say, look at us. I've kept all of these things from my youth. Look how good I'm doing. Look at, look at what a godly husband I am, how I'm doing all of these things so well. No, as we walk through these things, it's really good for us as we preach the law to ourselves, as it were, to see, man, we don't measure up. We have failed at every single one of these commands in some way, shape, or form that we've looked at this morning. All of us are guilty. We have blown it. This isn't about us. This is about Jesus Christ, the, the King of kings. It's about who He is and what He has done. It's about how He has changed us and how His gospel is reshaping our lives by reshaping how we define beauty. It's about how in spite of the fact that we were sinful and alienated from God and unable to keep these commands, he came to earth, died in our place on the cross, taking the wrath of God against us so that we didn't have to. And he rose again on the third day too, didn't he? 
And he did that to prove that he had resurrection power over all of these sins that we struggle with, resurrection power over sin and death. And when we turn from our sin and trust in him for our whole lives, when we can say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, then that same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead makes us the kind of people who put off sin and put on righteousness because we're motivated by something different than everyone else on the planet. His spirit makes us the kind of people who can actually walk in a loving way because we've been loved by the Father and loved by the Son. His spirit makes us the kind of people who can walk in wisdom because he's revealed wisdom to us in his word. He makes wives who can actually follow their husband's leadership because they know they're ultimately following Jesus Christ, the perfect husband. Husbands can lay down their lives moment by moment to love their wives because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And he has changed us by the power of his gospel into a different kind of people than we once were. Our identity has been fundamentally altered forever. And so the gospel truths that we believe are creating among us a gospel culture, a gospel culture that puts his love on display for the whole world to see. Lord, that is really our prayer. We want this world to see how great you are, God. We want them to see the the beauty of Christ, the glory of the gospel. We want them to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus as you cause the light of the gospel to shine into their hearts. And we know, Lord, that somehow, incredibly, you use us in that process. Lord, as we confess to you this morning how often we've failed at the things that we've talked about, we have deep confidence, Lord, because you've promised that you forgive our sin and you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And now we stand with our feet firmly on the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, empowered by your spirit to live differently so that this world can see your character on display in our lives and in our church, in our marriages and in our families. God, we need your help. So work these things in us as we work diligently to see these things come to fruition in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.